you know, Leslie went on to be with the Lord on Tuesday morning after a lengthy stay at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And we know what the scripture says. Psalm 116 and verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. And to live is Christ and to die is gain. And all that. It's all true. But death still hurts. It is hard. And we sorrow not as those who have no hope, as this passage this morning reminds us, but nevertheless we do sorrow. And I have some hope and some encouragement for you all this morning in the face of that sorrow taken from God's Word, specifically from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, which I just read for you. I want to try to put a little wind in your sails this morning. And here I was trying to shepherd you. <laughs> I tried to put a little wind in my own sails this morning too. And bring myself and you some hope and encouragement uh, from God's Word. And it starts with some information. Paul begins the section of text before us this morning by saying, we do not want you to be uninformed. What follows then in this passage is information, which combats the state of being uninformed. If someone is uninformed, they need information so as not to be uninformed. You inform them with information. So, in keeping with Paul's approach, I want to present you with some information so that you will not be uninformed. And then we will look at the usefulness of that information to us as we grieve. So let's begin with the information presented to us in this passage. First, Paul tells the Thessalonians what happens to Christians who fall asleep. Which is another way, of course, of saying Christians who die. <laughs> now let's pause on this and know the language. Why this figure of speech? Why call it sleep when he really means death? This is just a sentimental euphemism to protect tender hearts from the shock of death. The way that well-meaning people sometimes say sentimental but untrue things with no factual basis whatsoever to comfort the grieving. For example, when someone dies, we hear people say, well, heaven got another angel today. Listen, we don't turn into angels when we die. It's sentimental. It's, in fact, it's pure sentimentality. Sounds nice. It's superficially comforting if our consciences will allow us to say it. Indeed, indeed, there's another, another beautiful angel up there. She got her wings, you know? It's superficially comforting, but it really has no basis in reality. Is calling death sleep something like that, sentimental but false, with no basis in reality? No, to the contrary, it is a figure of speech, but it's a figure of speech 
which doesn't distort or obfuscate reality. It's a figure of speech which accurately reflects reality. Matthew Henry says, Death does not annihilate those who die in the Lord. It is but asleep to them. It is their rest. And it is their undisturbed rest. They have retired out of this world to rest from all their labors and sorrows. And they sleep in Jesus, being still in union with Him. They sleep in His arms and are under His special care and protection. Their souls are in His presence and their dust is under His care and power. So that they are not lost, nor are they losers, but great gainers by death. And their removal out of this world is into a better one. Yes, indeed, brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. Those who fall asleep in Christ are still cared for by Christ. Even on the other side of that nightfall which has caused them to fall asleep, as it were. Their souls are taken into His presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And their bodies are laid in the grave to rest and to sleep until a later time when body and soul will be reunited. On that note, look at what this passage says about the location of the dead in Christ. On the one hand, it says in verse 14 that God will bring them with Him. God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Meaning that God will bring them with Him when He returns to make His dwelling place with man, as Revelation 21 says. When God descends, in verse 16, the whole Godhead Father, Son, and Spirit descend with the new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21 with the dead in Christ to make all things new and to live together with those of us who are still alive at that time in the new heavens and earth forever. So God will bring with Him at that time those who have fallen asleep in Christ implying that they were in heaven at that time. And must descend from heaven. But on the other hand, look at verse 16, which says that the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ will rise. End of verse 16. Well, which is it? How can the dead in Christ descend from heaven and yet also rise? You ever tried to go up and down at the same time? Get in an elevator on floor two and press one and three. Listen, you're not going to arrive at both, right? Depending on how that elevator is programmed and how many milliseconds earlier you press one or the other. You're going one way or the other, up or down, but not both. How is it that the dead in Christ will descend and rise? The answer to this question lies in the separation of the body and soul at death. The soul departs to be with Christ, as Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 1. 
In other words, it ascends to heaven. But what, what do we do with the body? It descends into the earth, into the grave. So part of you goes upward, and part of you goes downward. Not into hell, but into a grave, when you die in Christ. When Christ returns, He brings with Him then, as verse 14 says, that part of the dead in Christ which had ascended to heaven, namely the soul. That part descends then from heaven. And the other part of the dead in Christ which had descended to the grave, namely the body, that part rises according to verse 16. This is the way we can resolve the difficulty that this passage presents to us by describing dead Christians as descending from heaven with Christ at His return, but also rising from their graves when He returns. There is, at the end of all things, a reunification of the body with the soul. And we will live forever with Christ, not as disembodied spirits, but as real red-blooded, warm-bodied, physical beings in the very real new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the information that this passage presents to us about those who fall asleep in Christ. But what about Christians who never fall asleep? What about Christians who are still alive at the return of Christ? What happens to them? This passage says that they will be caught up together with the dead who have risen in the clouds to meet the air. Uh, Sorry, to meet the Lord in the air. So don't worry. If you're alive and never die before Christ comes back, you won't miss out. You will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. Now, as a bit of a somewhat lengthy but important aside... This passage is also used in an attempt to prove two theologically incorrect ideas. First, the supposed rapture of the church prior to the very end of all things in which Christians are supposedly taken out of the world before final judgment and possibly before tribulation at the end of time, depending on how some take it. And second, that our final destination is somewhere other than earth. Let's briefly deal with each one of these erroneous ideas in turn so that we can get the correct information and not be uninformed. To the end, we will make, toward the end, we will make some application of these things, I promise. But put your thinking caps on for a few minutes. First, it is plain that this passage is teaching about the end of all things and not just some event prior to the end of all things. It says that God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 14. Not that Jesus will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now, of course, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But Jesus is not the Father, nor is Jesus the Spirit, strictly speaking. Three persons. When the term God is used in the New Testament, it is sometimes used to denote the Father, but often it is used to denote the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only in one place that I am aware of does it refer to Jesus specifically, and that is in Acts 20 and verse 28, 
where Paul tells the Ephesian elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. In Acts, the term makes sense to use the term God to reference Jesus, as in Acts 20.28. But there is no apparent reason why Paul would use the term God to mean Jesus here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And it wouldn't make any sense to say, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who, are fallen, who have fallen asleep, as it does say in verse 14, if Paul meant to denote Jesus alone when he said God. Because then the sense of it would be, through Jesus, Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul certainly means to imply that the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are coming and bringing in this passage. And when does God come? It's at the end of all things. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Moreover, this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 is clearly teaching about a time when the dead in Christ are raised. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, or from 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, we know that it will be at the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 15 also tells us in verse 52 that this will be at the last trumpet. This is the trumpet mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. So putting all this together, the picture painted for us in 1 Thessalonians is that a trumpet will sound and Christ will descend from heaven with His Father and His Spirit and the spirits of departed saints. And the bodies of those saints will be raised and reunited with their spirits. As Revelation 21 says, which I read for you already, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God is with man. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. So, or in this way, we will always be with the Lord. Talking about the same events here. So that addresses the first misunderstanding and misapplication of this passage. This passage here at 1 Thessalonians 4 is not speaking about a secret rapture, 
but an end times, visible, public, dramatic, world-changing event that concludes this present age and ushers in the eternal state. After this event, it's, death is no more. After this event, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now let's look at the erroneous idea that our final destination is somewhere other than the earth. First, look at the directional language of this passage. God brings in verse 14. And Jesus descends in verse 16. Compare this with the directional language of Revelation 21, which as we just saw, describes the same event from another angle. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Notice that the New Jerusalem comes down as Jesus descends and God brings. And notice that Revelation 21 says that the dwelling place of God is with man rather than that the dwelling place of man is with God. If I say you know, so-and-so dwells with me, that would imply, in the grammar of it, that that person has moved in with me. Whereas if I say I dwell with so-and-so, that would imply, in the grammar of it, that I have moved to dwell in with them. The implication here is that God comes to dwell with us. And the rest of the directional language of the passage is consistent with that understanding also. Now compare, I'm going to come to uh, being caught up to meet him in the air in a moment. But compare all this with this, the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet in Revelation 11, 15, which providentially we just looked at. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The idea presented there isn't the destruction of the earth but is actually the consummation of Christ's reign on the earth. So as I asked you last week, or I think it was two weeks ago now. What of the statement in Revelation 21 that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away? And the statement that Peter makes that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or, or burnt up. Hold that thought and let's circle back to what happens to those who are still alive at Christ's return. 
it says that we will be caught up to meet Him in the air. And 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Which means even though, well, maybe, maybe all of us in this room might die, depending on how long the Lord tarries. Not all Christians will die before Jesus comes back. Because even if it was generations and generations from now, there will be some Christians still alive who have not yet died, who have not yet fallen asleep. So we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You're not going to miss out if you haven't died prior to Christ's second coming. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Matthew Henry says here that those who are alive will, go, will undergo a mighty change, which will be equivalent to dying. The same, the same outcome will be ours, as will be the outcome of those who have died in Christ. I would suggest that in the same way that our present mortal bodies, after having been changed, will be no more. So the present heavens and earth will be no more. They will undergo at the return of Christ a purification by fire and a renewal which renders them fit for the presence of God together with His people forever. But notice that it is here on earth in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21, Revelation 11, where the Lord comes and descends to dwell with us. The fact that we will be caught up to meet Him in the air does not signify a rapture, nor that we will depart from the earth, but it's saying something more like we'll run down the driveway to meet Him. The way that the father in the parable of the prodigal son ran out to greet his, his homecoming son. As many commentators will point out, it was the practice of citizens in the early centuries to run out of the city to meet a returning victorious military general and to return with him from conquest back in through the city gates to usher him in. So that's our digression out of the way. Let's get back to the main point. And in doing so, let me sum up the information that this passage has given us so far. We do not want it to be uninformed. When Christ returns, He brings with Him, as verse 14 says, that part of the dead in Christ which had ascended to heaven, namely the soul. And the other part of the dead in Christ which had descended into the grave rises, according to verse 16. There is, at the end of all things, a reunification of the body and the soul. And we will live forever with Christ, not as disembodied spirits, but as real, red-blooded, warm-bodied, physical beings in the very real new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. When Christ returns, those, who, those Christians who are still alive will be caught up together with the dead who have risen in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. As Matthew Henry says, at this time they will undergo a mighty change which will be equivalent to dying. And in this way, that's the meaning of so 
verse 16. In this way, we will always be with the Lord. What a glorious hope that is. What a glorious hope that we have. And the last bit of information that this passage gives us is that it's all because of Jesus. Look at verse 14. This is key to the whole text. Since Jesus died and rose again. Through Jesus. Jesus is the key to it all. We couldn't rise again after dying if Jesus hadn't died and risen again. God couldn't bring with Him those who had fallen asleep in Christ if Jesus hadn't died and risen because they never could have been up in heaven with Him. If Jesus hadn't died and risen, death would be the final word. And both our bodies and our souls would have gone downward. The body to the grave and the soul to hell. Instead of experiencing the upward flight of our souls to God as we close our eyes in death. There would be no rising again and no waiting in heaven in the meantime if it wasn't for the death and resurrection of Jesus. God in His justice could not have justly overlooked our sin. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted in the place of those who will trust Him so that God can justly consider our sins punished and justly bring our souls to heaven at our death. And then bring them with Him when He returns to raise our bodies and to live with us forever. Could we live with God in filthy rags forever? Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Not all of our sins, but all of our righteousness. You see? The best we have to offer. Filthy rags. The prophet, prophet Habakkuk says that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Yet our righteousness is as filthy rags. How can God dwell with us when we are wearing clothes that are dirty with sin? Zechariah foresees prophetically a day when God will remove the filthy garments from His people and put pure vestments on them and a clean turban. This was fulfilled, of course, by He who Zechariah calls the branch, the servant of the Lord. Again, Jesus. We are clothed in His righteousness. It's all because of Jesus that we can hope for death to be just asleep to us. Just a rest from our labors and sorrows. As Matthew Henry said, until Christ returns and our triune God reunites our souls with our bodies and makes His dwelling with us forever. This is the information presented to us in the passage today. And it is the bulk of the sermon today. Let's consider now briefly and in closing its usefulness to us. First, 
This passage ought to prepare us, ourselves, to fall asleep. When we hear about what happens to believers when we die, and we have an idea of what to expect, and we see actually what glorious hope that we have to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, simply to rest from our labors, waiting for that day when we descend with Christ to have our souls reunited with our bodies. Death is no longer a fearsome thing to dread. It causes great consternation and great anxiety. It can almost become, it can become almost a longed-for thing. We ought not to prematurely bring about our own death via suicide as that is an affront to God's wisdom, God's sovereignty over us, God's possession of us. But to, de- to long to depart and be with Christ is no sin. To be heavenly minded such that you are done with the sorrows of this earth and the brokenness and the, the misery that we are in, even though there's still much common grace, as I, I point out at other times, much good in the world to enjoy and to celebrate good and perfect gifts that come down from our Heavenly Father, there's also much brokenness, much pain, much sorrow. And to reckon with that, and to, do, to long to depart and to be with Christ is no sin. Paul himself says to depart is better in Philippians. Let us then prepare for what is inevitable unless the Lord should return prior to our death. Let us prepare for the fact that at some point we will all die. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you need to be reconciled to Him. You need to look to Him in faith. Trust in Him. If you are in Christ Jesus, then recognize that you don't have to be afraid of death. Dying is often very uncomfortable, the process of actually dying. But death, as the old poet put it, is simply the gate to heaven, the the doorman to heaven, as one of the Puritans said, a frowning doorman who opens the gate to heaven. Let us live then with a sense of hope and longing for death or for the return of Christ whichever comes first. Second, this information ought to comfort us as we face the death of loved ones. Let us grieve with hope. Death of loved ones is always going to hurt. But when it is believers who have departed from us to be with Christ, we may remind ourselves that they have departed to be with Christ, which is far better. And even when our loved ones were not in Christ, we may still have our grief tempered with hope. Though that particular deceased individual may have been lost, and that is a somber reality. Death and hell will not win the war for all of Adam's fallen race. Nor for you, if you are in Christ. So even the passing of loved ones who are lost and not in Christ 
presents us with a death that is not a completely victorious conqueror. And a death which may take one and take another to hell, but will not take all. It reminds us that Christ has come and that there is salvation and that this need not be the fate of every individual. Christ beckons, says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We remember even facing the death of lost loved ones, that there is a Savior, and that death has not the final word. Because we are Christians, we can face then even the death of lost loved ones with hope to temper it. Third, let us be encouraged by these things in the here and now. Several years ago, my son started listening to an audiobook, The Hobbit. And at first, my younger son, Wade, who was just a small kid at the time, said that it was too scary and he didn't want to listen anymore. But I called him over and whispered a secret in his ear. And immediately after I whispered the secret in his ear, he told mom, it's not too scary anymore, and he was ready to listen. You know what I told him? Four words. The good guys win. Listen, let me whisper a little secret in your ear, so to speak, to encourage you. So that maybe this world full of its sorrow and full of its death might not be quite so scary anymore. The good guys win. Or more accurately, the one good guy, Jesus, wins. And everyone who is on his team wins with him and in him and through him. And this isn't the varsity sports team that you have to try out for and may or may not make the cut. Jesus isn't looking for the strong and able. Jesus welcomes the tired, the hungry, the thirsty, the dirty, the sick, and the sinful. Each and every one of you may be on Team Jesus, so to speak, even today. There's no reason why, even now, you can't get on Team Jesus. I know that many of you already are. I trust that you've been informed this morning as to what the Scripture teaches us about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. What happens when Christ returns. I hope this information has led to your encouragement. Because Paul says in verse 18, Therefore encourage one another with these words. I hope that your hope in Christ is deepened, even in the midst of the grief that we're experiencing over losing our sister Leslie, and the grief and sorrow which we'll inevitably go through in various ways, again and again, as we make our way through this sin-broken world.